0: Welcome to Living in the Square Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories bring us back to ourselves. This episode, um, which is releasing right after my Taurian baby podcast reached its one-year anniversary on April 30th, uh, will be the last episode until the fall of 2020. This means that you have an opportunity to really dig into all 34 episodes, not to mention the nearly weekly dispatches from our Queer Bodies in Pandemic Times series. This dispatch series will continue for many months to come, and I invite you to reach out to me if you're interested in participating. If you're interested in participating, or if you want to nominate someone to send in a dispatch. You can also repost and share the dispatches wherever your social media reach reaches. I would really appreciate that. I'm so honored to have been able to host many brilliantly vulnerable, tender, fierce queers in this series. Providing a platform for us to exchange the often unspoken aspects of our lived experience is a real passion of mine. I look forward to hearing from many of you, and you can feel free to DM me at livinginthisqueerbody or email me at livinginthisqueerbody at gmail.com to submit a dispatch. Finally, if you are in any stage of healing your relationship to body, food, and or exercise, I will be offering free snack and meal support via Instagram live at COVID-19 eating support and I'll put a link in my in the show notes and also you can check my Instagram for reminders I'll be doing that every Friday at 10 a.m eastern standard time this support is open to anybody And is health at every size informed? If you can't show up for Fridays at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time with me, check out at COVID 19 Eating Support for nearly 24 7 snack and meal support and perspective. It's really a wonderful resource and I highly recommend it. So, as this global pandemic continues, I think. We're all feeling quite deeply and concretely the barriers to embodiment in various aspects of our life, perhaps more acutely than ever. My guest today is someone who is very well-versed in speaking about the body in pain and the multiplicity of embodied experience. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Sav Schloderoff. Sab is a queer, trans, disabled PhD student in the Gender and Women's Studies Department at the University of Arizona. Their research in critical disability studies centers chronic illnesses, embodied and felt, memory, pain, trauma, and self-care and community care for the mind, body, and spirit. SAV combines their academic training in genetics, molecular biology, and gender studies with poetry, autobiography, current research in molecular biology and genetics, and theoretical work in their writing. Outside of research, they are currently the graduate assistant of the Disability Cultural Center. They work at the LGBTQ Plus Resource Center at the U of A as a safe zone facilitator. They are a member of the Disability Studies Initiative at the University of Arizona and co-founder of the Queer Futures Collective, where they create accessible educational and healing workshops and performances in person and online that focus on listening, vulnerability, learning through art and collective community care. You can find a lot more about Sav and what they're doing and what they're producing, and you should um, at Sav the Queer or at www.queerfutures.com. And just so you know, this episode was recorded many months ago, so Sav has generously provided us with an up-to-date dispatch from their queer body in pandemic times to enhance your listening experience thank you Sav for all you do and put out into the world you are truly a gem I hope you all enjoy this episode and take good care of yourselves and others
1: This is Sav um, coming in from, you know, COVID-19 times. I am just given an update. Um, I am currently quarantining at home uh, with my two dogs and one of my siblings out here in Tucson. Um, I have two dogs now, which I don't think I had <laughs> at the time of the uh, actual recording, but Yeah, I have been, you know, doing all my work from home. I'm very, you know, lucky that I can still do a lot of my work remotely from home, but I have found it also hard to be doing work, I mean, at least associated with the Queer Futures Collective and, I mean, with my own writing and things like that. Um, It's been difficult for me to focus enough um, or feel like what I want to write is important enough because it's also that strange thing of, you know, needing to also rope in um, the pandemic that's going on um, even within, you know, every email that I'm writing to folks at the university and things like that. Um, But what I have been doing, I've been reading a lot of disability memoirs, which is good because that's one of my comprehensive exam lists, so I get to you know, feel productive in that way. Um, And I've also been attending uh, a lot of really great, you know, webinars and workshops and things like that that folks have been putting on um, around mutual aid and disability justice Um, and all of that, you know, I think that that's been a great thing that I've been able to take part in, um, that folks are putting on during this pandemic. And other than that, I mean, I've just been watching a lot of shows on Netflix and Hulu and HBO and all that. Um, And I guess a note that I would like to give to folks listening, but also to myself is what a lot of people have been saying, you know, online that I've been reading and things like that is just to be kind to ourselves and uh, give yourself the space to do what you can do and to not feel that pressure, you know, like I said, to feel quote unquote productive um, because we're not just working from home, that we're working from home or trying to do work from home um, during the global pandemic, and that it's not an easy thing to transition into. so to be kind to ourselves, to allow ourselves to just you know get out of bed and go to, you know, what I do, go to my couch and maybe watch shows on Netflix all day or to um, be on video calls with our friends and family because those are also really important. Um, It's been really nice to be able to connect with folks that I love, you know, over these video conferencing platforms, over FaceTime and all that. Um, Yeah, to just be kind to ourselves, to feel connected, to feel grounded however you can. And thank you
0: so much for listening. So, Sav, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really, I'm really interested to hear what you have to say. And um,
2: thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Great. Cool. Okay. So as you may know, I like to start each conversation with some version of this question. And I guess, you know, the prompt is to think about, you know, how you came to know or understand what it meant to be in a body um, early on in your life.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's a Loaded question <laughs> and actually yesterday um we have like a meeting group at my job at the disability cultural center we were talking about disability identity but it kind of bled into because a bunch of the other folks are also you know like trans and queer and like how all of those kind of intersect mm-hmm. with one another um, yeah so I think I've always had like a very um disjointed connection with my body which i think is pretty true for you know a lot of trans and queer people who you know trying to find language for like what it feels like and not really having that language um and then also being you know a chronically ill kid until like (laughs) a chronically ill adult and kind Mm -hmm. of you know like why is my body in pain all the time and you know why are these things happening yeah and i think a lot of that messaging kind of taught me that it was like my body was different or like, you know, not correct, not right. And then I think that, you know, led into a lot of other (laughs) um, disconnections with my body later on through like eating disorders and things like that. Um, Yeah, so Mm. I think it's been a complicated road to kind of just now, you know, feeling more comfortable in my body and with like my expression. And I think that that, you know, figuring out clothes that I like or hair, um, not having hair um, has really helped a lot. And then also being around other um, queer, trans, and disabled folks, um, you know, that you can share that connection. You don't really have to explain um, what you mean by that. Like other folks can just kind of inherently understand what you mean.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that, you know, those questions like, they sound like very, you know, early, they're questions that like most kids ask in early childhood, right? Like, mm-hmm. why am I in pain? Or why is this happening? Or, you know, like, this morning, I was taking my daughter to school and the climate march is happening today mm-hmm. in New York City. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um you know, implied in some of her questions is like, why the fuck is this? Like, this is so exciting and she's inspired and all this stuff, but she's like, why is this happening to our planet? Right. You know what I mean? They're like very child, like, you know, wonderings, understandable wonderings. Like, why are these really intense forces sort of coming to bear on my life and existence? And mm-hmm. I guess it seems like living in a chronically ill body those questions like kind of just continue, like they never really get fully answered, I guess. Yeah. Um, Those questions of like, why now? Why pain? Why my body? You know? um, And so I wonder how you, I mean, you, you said that it's a very, you've had a very complex, you know, experience with your body in this, these ways, but, you know, one of the things that I think I guess I'm imagining is a point of connectivity with these like this community or that these multiple communities that you you're alluding to is this idea that like other people have lived with those questions. Other people you're connecting with have lived with those questions for Mm -hmm. their whole lives, you know? Yeah. Um, And that there's something about that that feels helpful and reassuring.
2: Yeah, definitely. Because I think, you know, it's like when you're younger, even now as an adult, it's like, you know, going to people in positions of authority, like doctors that, you know, chronic pain patients aren't taken seriously really ever. Like you go into your appointments and they think that you're there because you're quote unquote drug seeking um, or that, you know, oh, it's just your period or it's just anxiety. And I think that, yeah, you can feel really shut out, but it's also like, you need to go through those avenues Mm -hmm. to get the help you need, but it's really hard. And so, yeah, finding, um, you know, who I would consider like my queer family, my chosen family, um, that can understand that, you know, that we're going through similar things of, you know, like years of doctor's appointments without a whole lot of answers or where people are being, you know, very condescending, et cetera. Um, Mm. that, yeah, we can help each other out. And even, you know, especially online, I think the like people on Twitter that are disabled or chronically ill, like that's been a lifesaver, I think for a lot of folks, um, to find information, you know, some folks are lucky enough to get doctors that can understand or that specialize in these things and they can share information with other people like, Hey, these are the tests you should be asking for. These are the questions you should be asking. And I think that that's, really helpful. And so it's, you know, like sharing information in these networks um, that, you know, even people online finding connections that way has been really amazing. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit more about kind of the different ways that you've tried to maybe prior to finding these networks or like really feeling more, it sounds like you feel at this point like a little bit more in control of some of the choices that you have around mm-hmm. like your gender expression or your, you know, kind of who you're associate like who you, who you can be friends with or whatever, like communities that you can connect with. Mm-hmm. But do you feel like you could share a little bit about like how, what you've gone through leading up to that um, in terms of managing the things that you've had to manage with your body. Like how have you attempted to kind of take care of yourself? Um, yeah. <laughs>
2: and I would say that hasn't, that wasn't until what now, like three years ago, probably it was, um, not until after I left my undergraduate program and like moved away. Um, cause I'm originally from Minnesota and I went to undergrad there and then moved out to San Diego for my master's. And now I'm here in Arizona for my PhD program. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until my master's program. Um, and then that a lot of that was because, um, In Minnesota during my undergraduate, uh, I had several very abusive relationships that I was in, um, and a lot of like, you know, controlling partners, but also like physical and sexual abuse and things like that. And I think that that really, you know, when you're in those situations, you don't have um, the capacity to really be thinking about yourself at all or any sort of reflection. And I think that that really um, hindered me from even exploring, you know, these questions about like my gender or. Uh, hindered me from realizing, um, you know, my disability, my disabled identity, things like that. Um, mm. So, yeah, it wasn't really until three years ago that I think I was ready to start talking about a lot of um, the traumatic things that I've gone through. And with that, uh, like starting writing again, because I hadn't, I used to write all the time as a kid. And then, you know, a lot of, Unfortunately, traumatic things happened to me in like my, uh, teenage years and young adulthood and things like that. Uh, but then through writing and, uh, being in my master's program and getting the chance to start reflecting again, um, that's what really helped me. So, yeah. you know, through both writing and then, uh, finding community of people that have similar experiences to me, that that was really healing and yeah, so it wasn't until I got to move away, which I think that that a lot of people can resonate with that needing to like physically leave a space to feel safe and to have the room to grow, um, mm-hmm. was really really necessary for me.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I appreciate what you're saying about kind of having having to survive and just be in a in a place of kind of surviving and functioning mm-hmm. that that just does not allow a person to. Kind of feel like you have any choice or feel like you have areas to explore. It sounds like, mm-hmm. you know, that, that this like new iteration of your life now that there's more space to explore. You know, you mentioned earlier like your hair or, you know, no hair mm-hmm. or, you know, <laughs> clothes I want to wear or like what makes me feel good and not being kind of in like a constricted space of not being able to really see those things as options are available mm-hmm. to you. What was the what do you feel like looking back now? Like, what was the sort of impact of that on you um, and your, I don't know, well, overall well-being?
2: Yeah, I mean, it really took a long time um, because I think you know a lot of folks that have been in uh, domestic violence situations or domestically abusive relationships understand that it's like also you tend to fall back into similar types of relationships, um, and so it was a really unfortunate cycle for a very long time, um, of, you know, they would tell me how to dress. They would tell me I needed to like lose weight or gain weight, or I needed to act like this around their friends and family members, or they didn't want me working at this job. So I had to get a different job, you know, and so you don't really have control at all in those situations. And so it was really figuring out, um, you know, What did I like? What did I like wearing? Um, What kind of activities did I like doing? And so, yeah, that first year when I was in my MA program um, that I lived alone for the first time in my life as well. And I think that that was also really important for me um, to have like a space where I felt safe in a space that was just mine, you know, where someone wouldn't be like, throwing my things away or like destroying my stuff. Um, and, or like snooping through my things, you know, like basic, yeah, it's, um, survival and, you know, trying to feel safe in your space again. And that was really necessary for me. So, yeah, I think really through that. And like I said, through writing as well, which is why, you know, both Krizia and I, um, started the Queer Futures Collective that I created this space for myself through Sunday Sentiments to kind of, write out a lot of this stuff. Um, And also with that, uh, be able to connect with people literally, you know, all over the world. Like, you know, we have folks from everywhere that, you know, read our stuff and um, can connect with us. And that there are a lot of uh, very similar, you know, a lot of people have very similar experiences, even when I've gone and done talks, you know, at other universities and things like that. that I always find people that are like, you're going through exactly what I went through. Um, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, so finding community, but also having that space to, you know, learn who, learn who I was for like the first time in my life, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what are you discovering about who you are?
2: Um, I think, uh, you know, it's, I'm discovering that I am a very good listener, that I am very good at, through my new jobs, I've run a lot of internship programs and mentoring programs. And I have been teaching, you know, uh, courses for like the first time in my life. And I used to be so terrified of like public speaking of any kind. And so it's like, I found, you know, that that's like what I love doing. And, um, I mean, as a kid, it's like, I was a performer all the time. I was in ballet, I was doing plays and things like that. I felt like I lost a lot of that. So really it's been like reconnecting back, uh, with you know things that I enjoy um and yeah mm-hmm. so I think finding um jobs and work that are really meaningful mm-hmm. to me and making connections especially with like younger uh, queer and trans folks has been amazing and is definitely work that I can you know obviously want
0: to continue yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's really cool yeah mm-hmm. I I guess I'm interested in kind of exploring a little bit more about what you, in both the work that you're doing and also in your own experience, like what, what it has meant for you to live in, I think what you're identifying as like a sort of a chronically ill body in, like in academia, um, in, in a sort of a particular system, um, mm-hmm. There are many systems, you know, you mentioned earlier, like the kind of Western medical structure and what mm-hmm. it's like to navigate that. I mean, we barely touched on that. But, you know, I think, you know, just thinking about the the demands of academic life, especially where you are now in terms of, you know, working towards your Ph.D. and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, what's up been like for you to navigate? <laughs> yeah, it's really rough. And I think, you know,
2: um, you can just search academic ableism um, on Twitter and you'll find a plethora <laughs> of stories. Um, yeah, it's, and I mean, I, my health took a really bad turn after I finished my master's thesis, mm-hmm. which is really common for folks, unfortunately, you know, after putting yourself through so much stress and then it's just like your immune system and your body's like, okay, like I'm done. Like I'm out, (laughs) I'm taking a break. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, that, that it's also been hard trying to like advocate for myself because I think it's like the mindset of like, yeah, academia is tough. It's tough for everyone. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I went through that too and it's like well i don't think you necessarily did go through that because um you know everybody does have these demands put on them and people do get very sick but it is another level when you know you're already chronically ill or disabled and then to like add that stress on top of it is just it yeah and i mean the only way to really make that through is to find, you know, allies on campus or in your department that understand. Cause I think a lot of people, you know, when I say I'm exhausted, I don't mean like, Oh, I'm tired. I didn't get enough sleep last night. It's like, I am like physically exhausted. Like I can't move my arm. Like it's like, it feels like I'm in uh, like underwater and someone has like all these weights on top of me or something. Um, Or when I say like, I'm in pain, you know, it's like, I have like nerve damage and things like that. So it's, you know, it, and I think that those words too, like being tired or being in pain, that they can be diminished a lot and that that can be really hard for people to understand like the severity and like the realness of it. And yeah. And then additionally, you know, having to go to doctor's appointments on top of, you know doing school teaching courses or working on campus, you know, trying to write your academic work, trying to get published, you know, all these things. And then like, on top of that, you have to go to like all these doctor's appointments, um, where you also have, you know, more people that don't believe you that are like questioning your experiences and, you know, kind of insinuating that you're like lying or being overdramatic, um, Mm. can be really frustrating. Um, and so, yeah, being in academia, like, wow, it's great. I think for like the flexibility of like, I get to set kind of my own hours and things like that. And I do really love the work of getting to educate folks. I love being in classes. I love reading. And I mean, I think a lot of us that are in academia are drawn to that, but then there are, you know, obviously so many pushbacks and so many requirements on like your body, mind that can be,
0: really, yeah, really exhausting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think just, just the way you're talking about like the burden in all of these scenarios, the burden being on you to kind of further validate or convince or, um, Mm -hmm. You know, even advocate for yourself. Like, there's a kind of you know emotional labor and exhaustion that it goes into um, having to validate or advocate for something that, like, in some ways, you know, I'd I'd be curious about this, but kind of returning to this idea of like, why am I in pain or why is this happening? Like, Mm -hmm. something that you aren't, you know, a constellation of symptoms or 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 feelings in your body that you're not even. Maybe you are at peace with them, but I mean, just like really kind of having to talk about your needs from a place of, okay, you know, sometimes deficit and really Mm -hmm. a lot of confusion, like emotional confusion and grief, you know, I just, I think, I mean, that's a common, that feels like that's a common experience for, um, people who, are chronically ill or live in disabled bodies. Um, mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Cause it's like, you know, a lot of things that you used to be able to do in your life, like, you know, you can't do anymore, um, that there is, you know, a transition period. And even, you know, it's a, it's a long process for a lot of folks to even come to identify as disabled if they even, you know, ever want to take that on as like an identity.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but yeah, um, And then, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that.
0: (laughs) Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about if you, if you feel okay with it, like talk a little bit about how you did come to, you came to identify as disabled. You said Mm -hmm. that it was kind of a a process and a journey for you.
2: Yeah. um, So I think like the first time I understood uh, disability as being like an identity that people, like take on and identify themselves as was uh, I took a disability studies class in my undergrad, um, with my professor, Angela Carter, who is a wonderful human being. Um, and I, I took so many classes with her when I was an undergrad at the U of M. Um, and yeah, so getting to realize that, that like, you know, all these experiences that I was having, um, and like even dying, cause I had already been diagnosed with several things at that point, but I didn't see them as being like, you know, a disability and it wasn't until, uh, you know, that was in like, I think my junior year. And then it was developing that interest and being like, well, I really like doing disability studies. Um, and then that's kind of what I entered into my MA program with was wanting to focus in on disability studies. And, uh, through that, I think it just eventually, um, that I felt more comfortable. Cause I think for a lot of folks, I think that they're like not disabled enough.
0: Yeah. Um. <laughs> a little bit more about that. Like within yourself, like what, what was the kind of disconnect for you around um, having received diagnoses, mm-hmm. experiencing chronic pain and, but also kind of yeah. Just like, what was the disconnect around the identity or kind of joining in a community or communities? Um, mm-hmm. so a
2: lot of my diagnoses were like, uh, mental illness or mental disability, uh, diagnoses at first. Um, and that I had been experiencing, you know, chronic pain for so long, but I didn't, I, for me, like, you know, at some point that just becomes like the norm. And like, you kind of assume that like a lot of people feel the same way or they must, because no one's talking about it. And Yeah, it wasn't until I, you know, was experiencing a lot more nerve pain, like, in my face and, like, uh, in my hands and feet and things like that, um, that I felt, I don't know, like, more validated, because I think a lot of us, um, a lot of folks feel like, you know, unless you have physical disabilities, that a lot of, like, you can't really claim it, or unless you're, like, visibly disabled, that people are going to, like, question you too much, um, So it can feel like really intimidating or like you're kind of a liar or, you know, and that's like a lot of internalized things, you know, you're already hearing from the doctors and you're already hearing maybe from like your family members or your classmates, et cetera. And so like you kind of internalize a lot of that. Um, and then this past year, it's like, you know, I had to start using mobility aids to be able to walk. Um, and then it's like, you know, people visibly see me as disabled already and, yeah. So I think that there, it's like not feeling like you have enough of the experiences to claim that, um, or that you shouldn't be like identifying that way. Cause you're not like the spokesperson or I don't know. And I think that those feelings, you know, they can be put on to both like queer and trans identities that, you know, you don't feel queer enough, or you don't feel like you're trans enough to be able to claim those. Um, cause you think that, people might, I don't know, find you out or I don't know. It's a lot of self-doubt and a lot of, yeah, internalized messaging about all that, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Wading through a lot of that, those internalized messaging messages and also, you know, having had, as you talked about, like some really at the very moment when you were actually, you know, experiencing a lot of symptoms or a lot of, pain or distress like being in in a relation in a series of relationships that you know also were were like invalidating your experience and so Mm -hmm. this kind of like I'm picturing sort of this dissociation around your body right you know Mm -hmm. it's a body in pain and so like and you're in psychic pain and so you're just like not really there um Mm -hmm. yeah the like active I guess the act of like identifying as disabled kind of cuts through some of that dissociation at times, you know? Um, mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And I mean, additionally with that too, it's, you know, we're all taught bad things about disability. Like it's like a negative thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, a lot of internalized ableism, um, you know, and I think that that's very common for folks uh, mm-hmm. to Because then, you know, if you say, I'm disabled, well, someone might come to you, they do, um, and they're like, oh, well, why are you saying that? Like, no, you're differently abled. No, you're like, you have diverse abilities or you're not really disabled. Like, you shouldn't say that about yourself. Um, And that can really be a barrier for a lot of people too. Like, who do you want to, in that way, come out to? Um, Because it will just cause like a flood of questions or people will kind of look you up and down or like the conversations will end. Um, that happened even just recently. I was at, uh, like this kind of, uh, I was at a dinner for, um, this women's studies group, um, here in Tucson. Um, and yeah, I'd be like, Oh, what do you do? I do disability studies. And they'd be like, oh and like kind of smile at me and then just like the conversation ended um and so I think yeah coming to identify disabled on the other end it's like you know internalized ableism but also who do you want to
0: come out to and have to like
2: re-explain all this stuff to Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. what is what do you think about that kind of notion of the comfort that people take in in sort of pushing the agenda of like differently abled, or you know, what do you what are your thoughts about that for yourself, and maybe, um...
2: yeah, I mean, and I think a lot of that is what I don't know if we look at just like higher education or people that teach like K through twelve, the language around all that is special needs, special mm-hmm. ed, um, and that a lot of parents take more comfort in saying their child is differently abled than saying that they're disabled because, you know, even them, like they're taught, that's a negative thing. Um, and then the kid, uh, is also taught, oh, I'm not disabled. I shouldn't say that. Um, this is what like my parents have taught me. This is what my school has taught me. Um, and that people are very uncomfortable with even saying they weren't disabled. Um, and I have noted that even, you know, in like social justice spaces or like feminist spaces, um, things like that, that when it comes to talking about disability, they'll just talk about ability. And it's like, well, that's not at all what this like. We all have abilities. Um, this is talking about, you know, specifically disability as mm. um, an identity and so, yeah, I think it's just a lot of the messaging that we receive through the education system, mostly, um, for folks that they feel more comfort in saying differently abled because they also don't want to offend anybody. And it's all of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From a disability justice standpoint, what would you hope for those, ki- those younger kids? Like what, what messages would you hope for? for I don't know yeah.
2: Yeah. I think it's just, I would hope that eventually we can, you know, phase out this language. Cause it's also like, you don't want to correct how someone identifies, like how they identify, if they identify as differently able, then that's okay. It's, um, just when, you know, especially when it's coming from abled folks and they're like correcting you about language that you're using for yourself that can, it's like, that's harmful. Um, so I would hope that, you know, we can get, obviously, more media for kids. Like, there's really no representation of disabled kids in a lot of um, mm-hmm. spaces. So and I think it's just making it less of a taboo topic to talk, to talk about or a taboo word to say. Um, so I would really hope that, you know, language in K-12 through 12 can... Hopefully, change in the future because then you know when kids are exposed to that language and you know just identifying as as disabled or understanding that you know their classmate is disabled, then it's like that will you know hopefully spark change. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that would be you mm-hmm. know my hope for all of that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you just shifting gears a little bit? I guess I'm I'm interested in in hearing a little bit about, um, you know, you said writing has been very helpful in connecting with people, but, you know, are there other either people, communities, you know, healing practices, things that have been, helpful and nurturing for your, and th- that you've found that have been helpful and nurturing for your body as you've kind of come out of this, or, you know, have been coming out of this period of like a lot of difficulty as an undergrad, you know, and mm-hmm. then like some recent, um, you know, exacerbation of, of symptoms and, and chronic pain
2: yeah, um so in my master's program, it was a class that we all had to take. It was a pedagogy's class and it was taught by um Professor Irene Lara. Um and she's a fantastic, wonderful person that I think for many people um that were in that master's program would agree that, you know, she was like the reason that like we could all stay there and like, you know, um yeah. And she is the one that had us journaling every week. Um, and it was just like, you know, journals that we'd write for ourselves and she would read them. Um, but you know, it was more of like getting into the practice of, you know, getting to write about your feelings that maybe you might not be able to vocalize, um, but that you can write. And, uh, so I think that that, was really like the turning point for me was getting back into writing through that course specifically Mm -hmm. um, and getting back to writing about myself. Because I think I, in a lot of my work, it's like, oh, I can write about everyone else and I can advocate for everyone else, but I don't, I can't get it myself. Um, And so it was really that class uh, that I think we also all felt like in community together. uh, Folks from like my year and like other people that were in um the ma program as well you know that we were able to actually have that you know an actual what we might call like a safe space of a classroom um Mm -hmm. uh which does you know it doesn't happen in all classrooms where like you feel comfortable to share personal information um and that was really uh like a a big turning point for me i think Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. and that in some ways you know i think is a interesting way to start talking about queer futures. Um, yeah. <laughs> so maybe we could talk a little bit about that cuz it's it sounds like it's very connected.
2: Mhm. Yeah, cuz getting to
0: explore
2: and write about our experiences and build that relationship with other people who I would consider like part of my queer family. Yeah, and getting back into a space of reflection and being comfortable with sharing those reflections I think can also be a really big step for folks um because you know like what you journal about maybe you don't want other people um (laughs) to know about but um I think learning that you can share that in the space and that uh people will listen or people can read it and they can connect with it was really important um and that that led me to want to share it with more people uh because I had seen, you know, through that course and also through a lot of my other work that I did um, during my master's program through like speaking engagements and like being on panels and uh, also through like mentoring that I saw like how much sharing your story can impact other people positively and can help foster those relationships uh, where you can like care for each other and also help them through similar situations. And I think that that was really what pushed us uh, to want to you know, we still provide workshops and, you know, still provide like these online resources and like also through our own sharing our own experiences and to just do that on like, you know, a bigger scale, you know, literally connecting with people, you know, that just everywhere. Um, and that, that, yeah, I think that that's really how it
0: blossomed into, uh, wanting to start up queer futures. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So at this point, the iteration of Queer Futures as it exists now is is like um, you said you said that it's reaching people like what's the feedback you've been getting like it's reaching people all over the world
2: mm mm-hmm. yeah, and I think that especially like when we go to conferences or when we do workshops it's like people will ask for it to be live streamed um, or will ask for like video format or for it to be um, or for it to be like recorded, et cetera um, and that that's really amazing um and to also you know get asked to speak at different conferences or at different universities and like people literally just finding you online um has been a great experience too and that we're able to have folks you know submit work uh to have it published there and everything like that um it feels like it you know can be a good space for people to explore, write about themselves, um, mm-hmm. just giving folks a platform in that way. And I think that that's been really great.
0: Yeah. I mean, it sounds, I was about to say it sounds like, but I know that this is true, um, that like there is a real specific constellation of needs that that it, you're meeting by mm-hmm. sort of bringing together. I mean, in some ways that's part of the project that I'm doing with Living in This Queer Body is sort of bringing together mm-hmm like an intersection of, of identities or parts of like aspects of experience that just aren't always brought into kind of a discourse. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems like our, our projects in some ways are similar in that way. Like the queer futures is, I understand it, is really kind of bringing together the experience, the complexity of the experiences of queer, trans, non-binary identified folks who mm-hmm. are um, who also identify as disabled or have chronic health issues or, mm-hmm. or chronically, you know, ill and pain, whatever, however, whatever aspect of that they identify with. But that, that, that like intersection is really what is really speaking to people. Um, yeah. cause I think it
2: is so common. Like I said, you know, I've been, um, when I've done workshops or gave talks, um, elsewhere, it's like, there's always folks that will come up to me that are, you know experiencing the same thing also going to doctors and i think it is you know that's um and that's what kind of what i want to eventually do my dissertation work in as well is kind of the intersections of ptsd and trauma and how um and how that leads to like chronic illnesses um and chronic health issues cuz so i think that that experience is very very real um And, Mm. yeah, and then, you know, with Queer Futures, it's also that we kind of wanted to bridge, like, academic writing with, you know, people's personal experiences, um, which I think that we hadn't necessarily um, seen in a lot of places, Mm. Um, getting to publish work that wasn't quite finished yet um, and work that was like accessible for people to read where you didn't have to like write. I don't think either was really write in like lofty academic language um, for that reason. Uh, And that we wanted it to be a space, not just for folks to like talk about, I don't know, current issues and media and stuff like that, but really to be, you know, a reflective space, but also like um, a space for like yeah, the intersections of uh, academic work and like personal lived experiences, yeah mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, it's really it's really cool, and so I guess you know as we're, we're kind of like wrapping up um, our conversation, I you know, maybe we can hear a little bit more about how how people can find queer futures you know, this kind of, this project, yeah. <laughs> like what, where, what are the different ways that people can access it?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, we have our website, which is just www.queerfutures.com, which is great that we could get that domain name. <laughs> um, and then we're Lock also, it down. Uh, I would say the most active on Instagram. I'm getting to understand Twitter a bit more, but on both of those, we're just at at queer futures underscore. Mm-hmm. Um and then that would be the same for like our Facebook page as well. Okay. Um, just to get in contact with us through there. Um, yeah. You can DM us on any platforms if folks want to, you know, uh collaborate on projects and things like that. Um, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool. Do you have, it's amazing. And, um, I'm glad that I'm hopeful that this will, you know, spread some, like alert other people to this really important platform that you've created. Um, are there other, any other things that you want to kind of plug or talk about that you're involved in?
2: Um, well, right now, I mean, I'm getting more involved on my campus, which I do also think is really important for, um, within academia to get involved in like your identity centers, cultural centers, resource centers. Um, cause also it's like a way to be away from like, you know, academia and that mm. you can kind of connect with other folks on that level. So yeah. Um, Our Disability Cultural Center at the U of A is in its second year now. And so, yeah, we're getting a lot more programming together. And I think that's also great that more Disability Cultural Centers are popping up around the US because, you know, that. And I think that that was also a space for folks to come to identify as disabled. So that's a lot of the work that I'm doing now. Um, and then, you know, getting more into my own research, uh, yeah. <laughs> and all of that, uh, cause in my undergrad, I focused more in on, uh, genetic testing kits and 23 and me and all that. And now I'm kind of moving into, um, I think more so looking at, uh, the ways that chronically ill people, uh, work outside of, you know, mainstream, uh um, medical systems so looking at like i don't know the prevalence of like biohacking um how people find community in the online spaces uh and then through i don't know quote unquote like alternative (laughs) healing methods um Mm -hmm. traditional healing methods things like that so i think that's where a lot more of my work and interest is finding Mm, itself now Mm -hmm.
0: yeah and folks can read um at least some of your work, um, on Twenty yeah. Three 23 Me, like the, the, that whole thing, maybe you can just say a little bit about that. Um, cause that's, I, I think that's actually how I found you through Queer <laughs> Futures and like oh. that, that work.
2: Yeah. So I have both my master's thesis, uh, which was rejecting the desire for help centering Crip Body, minds, and genetic testing. Um, and then also, uh, my recent article that I published in the Fat Studies Journal, um, which is also about that, but also focusing on how um, experiences for like fat people and for disabled people really intersect and we're looking at, um, how health is constructed and health products, Mm. um, are being marketed, that that's like a really big intersection, um, that I would also hope for more work to be done on, um, more research to be done on in the future is, you know, how ableism and, um, you know, fat phobia or anti-fatness, like Really intersect um, mm-hmm. in those ways that I think is really important to be talking about. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, that's great. Um, I guess my last question, sort of bringing us back to the beginning, mm-hmm. is you know if you could, you know, knowing all of what you know now, if you could travel back in time and kind of communicate something to your younger self, what might that younger version of you have needed to hear? Um, I think it's like if I
2: could have in any way communicated how to like advocate for myself more, um, would have been really important, um, in a variety of ways. Um, you know, as someone who is dealing with chronic pain, but also with, you know, depression and anxiety and other, um, and all diagnoses from a very young age would have really, needed <laughs> to hear you know like your experiences are real they're valid um and that other people need to know about them yes because uh, I think you know we're taught to keep a lot of those things inside mm-hmm. um at least I know I was you know keep your pain to yourself like don't cry um you know all of
0: those things so I think that <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's been very important to hear yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's like, I mean, in so many ways, it seems like that's the work you're doing mm-hmm. for yourself now and also with other people. So it's, it's really cool. And I'm, I'm so glad that I found you and found yeah. out about your futures and just like so much of what you're talking about really resonates for me personally, and also in terms of what I care about. And so, um, Care about for my community and for the people I love and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, you know, and a lot of your research interests are very. We should we should talk actually yeah. about my master's thesis because it's yeah. not like that dissimilar from what you're looking into. So, um, yeah, we're, it's definitely. It's definitely a lot of overlap um, in terms of what we're we're thinking about um, or have been thinking about and living um, in our bodies. So I really appreciate you taking the time to to be with me today. And I'm really glad to be sharing sharing your work with with our audience.
2: Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me and finding me and all that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay, Thank you.